John chapter 11, if you would open your Bibles there, we're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. Last week we took a little detour, I did a topical concerning the nation of Israel and God's plan and purpose for it, but we're back in our study of John's gospel. Beginning in verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that he, that's Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. But Bethany was, or I'm sorry, now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, note this, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Father, we pray that as we look at these verses, the verses that follow, Lord, we always ask that you would teach us, that you would give us insight and understanding. Lord, I know that unless... uh, You speak to us individually from your word. We will leave here with little. But if we have truly ears to hear what you might want to say to us, Lord, and we do invite you to to speak to us from your word, Lord, as we're just reading it, as we're with our Bibles personally, our Bibles on our lap, looking down at the text, that we'd ask you, Lord, to teach us. I also pray for myself, Lord, as as the human instrument today. Pray that you'd give me clarity of mind, that my thoughts would come together, and that you would help me to teach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in uh, John chapter 11, we really have a a kind of an intimate thing. It's a death of an individual, you have the two sisters, the parents aren't met- mentioned, so you kind of assume that they've, di- they've died, they're gone, they're off the scene, and that you have this, this family, you have Martha, you have Mary, and I don't know why, but in my mind, I think Martha would be the oldest. The scripture doesn't tell us that, but that Martha would be the oldest, and then Mary, and then Lazarus, maybe Lazarus was their little brother. Again, the scripture doesn't tell us that, and it doesn't really matter, but we know that Lazarus was sick. We saw it two weeks ago. Lazarus was sick. Word came to Jesus. Jesus knew that he was sick, and yet he delayed. And um, and and you wonder from a human standpoint. You know, you look at this, and we understand kind of the the heart cry of Martha, and we'll see it again from Mary. She says the exact same thing in verse thirty-two. But Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And we kind of understand that. You know. Uh, death is a difficult thing, isn't it? Um, I think it's extra difficult, hard for a parent to bury their child. And their child could be, you know, whatever, in their 50s, but it's still their child. No parent intends to outlive their children. But death is hard. It's a difficult thing. It's kind of a... Uh, it just seems so final, you know, from a human standpoint. It's interesting how many times, you know, I've been invited as a pastor into this most intimate moment 
of individuals and families uh, many times. And to me, it's interesting that in more cases than not, it's almost as if the person waits until everyone leaves the room before they die. You know, we're all gathered around, we're waiting. I know that uh, when my mother died, she is a recent one in our family who had gone home to be with the Lord. And uh, my sister and I and her husband and Tracy, my wife, of course, we were around the bed for a few days and we knew that, you know, it was getting close and we had been with her all night long and then early in the morning we were there and just with her, praying with her, you know. And, uh, and then we went into the living room to have a cup of coffee and I went to the restroom and I walked by mom's room and walked in and she was gone. I came out and I said, well, mom's gone, mom's home now. But we're, we're invited, in one sense, into this, this intimate situation only because of what had happened. I mean, there were probably many people who had uh, loved ones that were dying, maybe even in Bethany. I don't know how big the city was at that time, but surely in Jerusalem and the other cities around them. But in this particular case, it's recorded because, of course, of what had happened to Lazarus. He was dead. And we read just a moment ago that he was dead for four days. Uh, four days. I think that's interesting. Do you know, it seems like every culture has their silly superstitions. You wonder, where did that come from, you know? The Jews had their superstition about the dead. Their superstition went something like this. In fact, they might even, some might even still hold to it. That the spirit or the soul of the deceased remains around the body for three days, hoping that it might be able to return into the body. I think that's it's a weird superstition, but I think it kind of ties into the fact that, that Jesus waited until he was in the tomb for four days. And you almost wonder, because it seems that Jesus was constantly trying to get the religious leaders to think outside the box or to think biblically and to get people to, to kind of think beyond their own reasoning and I wonder if perhaps he waited on purpose, you know, for four days so that no one could fall back on, well, you know, uh, Lazarus, his spirit or his soul was still lingering there by the body, hoping that he could go. And all Jesus had to do is say, come back home, you know. I don't know. But we do know that this was hard. It was hard on Martha. It was, it was hard on, on uh, Mary. I think it's worth noting when you look at the scriptures to note how people react. We're all different, aren't we? Martha, she hears that Jesus is coming. She gets up immediately and she goes. She wants to talk to Jesus. She wants to see Jesus. Mary, it's almost as if she didn't even tell Mary. Because Mary probably would have got up and went to meet Jesus as well. We know that she loved Jesus as much as Martha did. But she was there. She was sitting. She was weeping. She was in mourning. So Martha goes and she meets Jesus. And in one sense, we could look at this and say, well, she confronted Jesus, or she expressed her faith in Jesus. I mean, I guess there's different ways you could look at it. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That could be an expression of faith. It could be a complaint. Lord, you're late. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that the Lord maybe was late for you? I think that as we walk with the Lord, he eventually convinces us that he's always on time. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will live or will rise again. 
And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked the question. It was a question. He says, do you believe this? And then you'll note her answer, which really wasn't an answer. It was more of a statement of faith. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. You know, guys, um, we take, I take, I hope we, I hope I could say we, and I'm not speaking about the mouse in my pocket, you know. I hope that I could say that we take the word of God seriously. We want to be students of the word of God. It sounds like it's self-serving when I say something like this, but there is a drought in the land of the word. Uh, there are many churches, they say, well, yeah, we believe the Bible. Do they teach the Bible? I mean, do they go through the Bible? Because you could say you could believe in things. You know, when I was a young guy, teenager, and I had... I was going to everything and, you know, anything that was of interest to me. I was seeking something, you know. I would go to the Krishna temple down in Pacific Beach because we lived in San Diego. Or I'd go to the self-realization temple in, uh, right there by Swamis in Encinitas, California. Or I would go to <laughs> different groups and, and Eastern mysticism and all of these things and all along, I was one who would say, I believe the Bible. You know what? I had never, ever read the Bible. And I think there's a lot of people in a lot of churches, it's true of them. I believe the Bible. Well, remember the book, First Fleshalonians? You know, oh yes, I'm familiar with that, you know. <laughs> the fact of the matter is this, Followers of Jesus, we need to be followers of his word. We need to know his word. We need to know what he teaches. I'm convinced as you just simply, I mean, many times when we go through a book of the Bible, we do just that. We go through an entire book of the Bible, and we start at the beginning, and we work our way through to the end, and it takes us months and sometimes years uh, before we finish that book of the Bible. And when we come to the close of our study of that particular book of the Bible, whatever it might be, I always feel like there's so much more that could have been gleaned from the study. I mean, we're just really scraping the surface of this. But I look at, many times, the book of the Bible. In this case, it's a gospel. And I think there is a pattern. You begin to see it. There is a pattern. You know, if you're a student of the Bible, you become familiar with the writings of Paul. I don't know how to explain it. You just become familiar with them. You just, no, the, the writings of James. You pick up right away, this is James. I mean, James is a hard hitter. James is works, 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 you know. But he also believes in grace and salvation through faith alone in the finished word of Jesus Christ. Peter, well, you recognize Peter. Peter talks a lot about suffering. And he also talks a lot about eschatology. You kind of become familiar with the writers, the authors, in, in, in our Bibles. But many times I'll say, boy, if all we had was, and I'll always kind of reduce it down to the book that we're studying at any given time. So if all we had was the book of John, the Gospel of John, we could easily say 
that Jesus was leading, he was leading up to something, that Jesus was doing something here. He was preparing the people, surely his, uh, his disciples who were listening, he was, he was leading them up to this point in time, John chapter 11. But as you continue to study through the Gospel of John, you say, and he was going beyond Lazarus' resurrection to his own resurrection. That's what Jesus was doing. He was preparing them. He's preparing. And the writer, John, in this case, he's preparing his readers. He wants his readers to follow. These are the words of Jesus. This is what he said. He was leading up to something. He wants you to understand something. So, leading up to the resurrection of Lazarus, leading up to the resurrection of Jesus himself, leading up to our own personal resurrection. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 26, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. You know, we listen to words like that, and we kind of, as Christians, sometimes I think we pretend, as, as I used to pretend when I would sit under these different gurus, you'd nod your head as if you knew exactly what they were talking about, and you had no idea what they were talking about. I mean, you really didn't. You just figured, oh, he's speaking philosophically, and, oh, that's heavy, man, you know, or whatever it might be. And I think that many Christians, we look at this, well, what do you mean? Uh, he shall, he may, he, whoever, let's see, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Well, Jesus said earlier in John's gospel, John chapter 5, verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in me, who or, believes in him, excuse me, believes in him who sent me, has eternal life, and listen, and shall not come into judgment, that's key, that's important, but has passed from death into life. Huh. And then Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 51, most assuredly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Guys, he wasn't speaking philosophically. He was speaking literally. And we protest, and rightly so, in one sense, on a human level, we say, everybody dies. Even Lazarus, he was resurrected, but he died again. I mean, have you ever met Lazarus? I haven't seen him on Christian television or writing a book or anything like that. You know, guys, in the book of Revelation, and I hope that you don't dissect your Bibles and say, well, we can't trust this, and we need to be careful of that, and you don't know about, you know, but in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 13 through 15, in chronological order, and I believe that we could take the book of Re Revelation in chronological order. So chronologically, this is following the thousand-year reign of Christ. We read this. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades, I want you to pay attention to that because that's important. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. They were judged. Remember, I just read it to you in John chapter 5, verse 24. Shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Well, Revelation goes on. Each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Listen, this is the second death. And anyone 
not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Man, no one wants that. The person who believes in Jesus and keeps his word will never see death. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 51. The person who believes in Jesus will never experience the great white throne judgment. Jesus, he's speaking of life and death. He's speaking of judgment. In Revelation, we see that it's referred to as a second death. Jesus, as he's speaking, as he's preparing the people, he, he's explaining something that many times we don't get, even as Christians. We kind of, yeah, you know, there's life and there's death and there's, you know. But think of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us a lot concerning life and death. In Romans chapter 5, or chapter 6, verse 6, says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also, and then it goes on, reckon your own old man dead. Guys, when Jesus is speaking about never experiencing death or never tasting death, obviously he's speaking of the second death. This is why it's so important. You know, I... Um, I was listening to this fellow a couple of weeks ago. And within Christianity, you know, there is this uh, kingdom now theology. So uh, kind of the thought behind it, thumbnail, you know, explanation is that um, the church, we're going to become stronger and stronger. Um, we are like the parable, you know, of of the tree with the birds, uh, you know, of the air nesting in its branches. We're going to become more and more powerful. We are going to um, begin to take over in areas of politics and music and the arts. And uh, we, we are just going to, we are going to get things ready for Christ to come. The church is going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. And the fellow he was teaching on this particular thing, and he says, you know, what? Are we supposed to believe that the church is going to get weaker toward the end? And I said to that video <laughs> that I was watching, yes. Because that's what the Bible tells us. You look at the seven letters to the seven churches. You know, you have this intriguing history of the church from the apostolic church until the last day church. In the last days, you have the Church of Philadelphia, the Church of, of people, you know, people's love, the love of the people, and, and you, uh, Philadelphia. And you have this church is described as weak. It doesn't have much, but you know, hold on to what you have. And, and it's a church that's promised a, a, 
a, a, a departure being taken from the things that are coming upon the world. But you also have the Church of Laodicea, and the Church of Laodicea is a church of people's rights. The Church of Laodicea is the church where Jesus is outside the church knocking. And is that, is that a picture of what we see today in many churches? Oh, give us drama, not from the pulpit, but from the stage. Entertain us. Make sure we feel good when we leave, church. You need to be concerned for the seeker. All of these things that have just kind of gone into the mind of people who are not students of the Bible. Because if they were students of the Bible, they would know that all of those things are just like what Satan always does. He puts a twist on it, and he always puts it backwards. You know, John tells us that we should be sensitive to the seeker, but the seeker he tells us to be sensitive to is the Father who seeks those who worship him in spirit and truth. That's what the Bible tells us. Bible doesn't tell us anything about being sensitive to the seekers, those who are just coming in. And how is that working, by the way? I think of, I know I'm rambling now, but I think of, I think of the denominations that God has used, has used, past tense. I think of the Methodist. I don't know about you, but when I think of Methodists today, I don't think of people who are sound in the word of God. They have departed, many of them, many of the churches. Thank the Lord for the few that have remained steadfast to the word of God. But you know, the Methodists were known for their fiery preaching. They stood upon the word of God. I think of the Presbyterians. They were devout in their understanding and their proclamation of God's word. I don't think of that when I think of Presbyterians today. I used to say to folks when they would come here to Calvary Oak Harbor and they would be transferred someplace else and they'd say, well, I don't think there's a Calvary there. I used to say, find a good Baptist church. You could always trust a Baptist church to teach the word of God. I don't say that any longer. Now I say, you're on your own. You'll have to do, <laughs> you'll have to do the church, the, the, the steeplechase, you know, go to church, to church, to church, just get into a place where they're teaching the word of God. But here's the fact of the matter. That guys, we need to take <laughs> all of this seriously. We could look at this. We just read over it. In fact, I could have read the entire chapter by now and could have said, yeah, Lazarus was dead. Then Jesus rose him from the dead. Hip, hip, hooray. That was a wonderful day. And it was, surely, for them. But we would miss what the Lord is, I believe, seeking to teach us through this entire thing. Obviously, there was a purpose for his delay. There was a reason why he waited until things were completely hopeless from a human standpoint. Your brother shall rise again. We, we say things like that when we comfort those who have lost a loved one. We'll say things like, you'll see them again. And we mean it, don't we? We do. If, if the person that we're speaking to is a believer and their loved one who has who's gone home to be with the Lord... I, is a believer. Obviously, they wouldn't be going home to be with the Lord unless they were a believer. But if, the, if both are believers, we say, you'll see them again. And it's an assurance that we have. But um, we surely would not say, you'll see him again now. But that's what Jesus was saying. 
Jesus is saying, hold on, Martha. You're not going to believe what you see. The Bible teaches that we've been born into spiritual deadness. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, that would be Adam, and death, remember, death. It's not just sin. It's a byproduct of sin. What's the byproduct of sin? It's death. It's death. Guys, Christian. See, rather than being embarrassed about the scriptures because they don't teach evolution, rather than being embarrassed about them, why don't we just hold dear to them and say, this explains everything. There was no death. There was no billions of years of death upon death upon death upon death upon death. There was no death until sin entered the world. This is what the Bible declared. It says, death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. And if the verse stopped there, we could protest and say, well, it's not fair. Why should I have to pay for Adam's sin? The verse doesn't stop there. It says, because all sinned. We inherited that sinful nature, but boy, have, have we exercised that sinful nature. Haven't we? We do all the time. Some of you are doing it right now. But if we believe in Jesus, the scripture says, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Isn't that wonderful? If you've not placed your faith in Jesus, you're still dead in your sins. You say, well, I don't like that. That's insulting. You know, I've come to your, your fellowship here. There's not many that come here, obviously, and, 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 and you're insulting me? No, I'm not insulting you. I'm telling you the truth because these things are important. I know that when I surrendered my life to the Lord, man, I knew that something had changed. It was like a, a switch was turned on. It was like light had come into my life. I was dead. I knew I was dead. I despaired of life. I was dead. And when I came to faith in Christ, my life had changed. I didn't understand all the theological ramifications of it. I, all I knew is what I felt, what I was experiencing at the, t at the moment, you know. And this is why it's so important that, that, that you need to believe, you need to receive. All of us do. And Jesus, Jesus, uh, in John's gospel, John chapter 1, he opens his gospel account by these, saying these words, or recording these words. But as many as receive him, that is Jesus, or accept him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual rebirth. When Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, the religious leader, he didn't say, hey, Nick, you're doing really well. It's good that you're religious. No, he says, Nick, you must be born again. You must be born again. You're the teacher of Israel, he said to Nicodemus, and you must be born again. You're lost, Nick. You must be born again. This is a reality. I remember when I used to go to Bible study with my wife before I was saved, and I used to get so irritated when the Bible was being taught because I felt like it was being targeted at me. Of course, the 
people that were there, they didn't know that I was the, you know, the target. Um, the Holy Spirit knew that, but I didn't know that, and, and they didn't know that. But I'll tell you, the word did not become, begin to resonate in my heart and in my life until after I became a Christian. If you're here and you're saying, oh, that's your opinion, that's your opinion. My father used to say that all the time. I used to share the gospel with my dad every time I had an opportunity to be with my father. I was so concerned for his salvation. And my mother as well. My mother came to faith in Christ in her 80s, about three years before she came to Christ, or came, uh, went home to be with the Lord. I, uh, it's amazing to me that after my dad died, my mother surrendered her life to Jesus. My dad was like a barrier to her. Sometimes I wonder, I don't want to lose my husband. Maybe she put her husband before the Lord. When she came to faith in Christ, many of you know my mother was legally blind, so she could never read the scripture. But she listened to the word, and she became a little fiery preacher, that uh, woman of maybe 100 pounds, you know, uh, as she would speak to her relatives and she would say, that's not true. The Bible says this. The Bible says this. The Bible says this. Bottom line, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, you need to do so. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. You know, guys, we look at this because this is the sixth of the seven I am statements of Jesus recorded in John's gospel account. Remember that John's gospel account is unique. It's not one of the synoptic gospels. That would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John is unique. And in John's gospel, remember that he centered kind of his writings, his account of, of Jesus around seven I am statements of Jesus and seven miracles of Jesus. Now, Jesus probably said, I am a lot of other things. And surely he did many more than seven signs or miracles, but he centered it around that. So this is the sixth of the seven I am statements. I am the resurrection and the life. And what most of us do when we read that is we say, I am the resurrection. There's the, there's the thing. There, I am the resurrection. And we kind of camp on that. And by camping on that, which I think we should because it speaks of his deity, the fact that he has power over life and death. I mean, wow, no one is the resurrection. He is the resurrection. But I think that, that many of us, we miss something that is perhaps more important to us who are alive and breathing right now, and that is the second part, and the life. I am the resurrection. We say, well, I'm not dead. I'm not concerned about resurrection right now, Lord. I will be, perhaps after I, I, I die, you know, even though we understand the scriptures, absent from the body for the believer, present with the Lord. That's what the scriptures teach. But resurrection will become important that my physical body will be resurrected and meet my new body in the heavenlies or wherever that takes place. But right now, I'm alive. I'm breathing. 
And this is why many people lose interest in the Bible, lose interest in church, lose interest in Christianity. You know, when I hear the, the numbers, it's, it's staggering, you know. Oh, so many people have left the church, and the young people have left the church, and people are leaving the church, and it's up to the church to, to do what they're called to do. Right. What is the purpose of the church? I know what my purpose is as a pastor, according to scripture, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So that's my role as a pastor, but I'm not just a pastor, I'm also the people. So, so I need to be equipped for ministry. So what is the purpose of the church that we'd be equipped to minister? And yet, Somehow we've bought into the lie. I'll tell you, the devil has pulled the wool over the eyes of many churches, denominations, movements of God that once were used greatly by God, and they're no longer being used by God because they've departed from the word of God. How can we reach people? What do we need to do? How can we get people in the door? Okay, we've got people in the door. How do we keep them in the door? There's a reason why, obviously, if you've been here for only 45 minutes or an hour now, you know there's a reason why this church probably doesn't grow that much. Because the word of God can be offensive to those who do not want to adhere to it. It just seems so abrupt. It seems so foreign to the natural mind because it is foreign to the natural mind. I'll tell you. But if we were all self-taught in the sense that I'm a Christian, I have the Spirit of God dwelling within me, I have my own Bible, you know, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to study my Bible. I'll tell you, the, the church, the, you know, the building, the place where people gather together, it would be so much more dynamic than what it is. And outside of the church, the ministry that takes place outside of the church to the people we work with and, and, you know, our neighbors and so on, it would be so much more dynamic than what it is. And because we don't see the dynamic of what the Lord told us we, we should see, I, I, I've come to give you life in that more abundantly, because we don't see the, the abundant life, we begin to blame, it must be, it must be the church. It must be him. It must be her. It must be them. It must be, you know, rather than stopping in front of a mirror and looking and saying, it might be me. It might be me. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you know that I don't remember if Jesus ever repeated, I mean, aside from this text, that he is the resurrection. But he did repeat that he is the life. In fact, John, again, John, because John is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John opens his gospel account. He opens it, his introduction of this gospel account, and he writes this. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1, 4. Wow. 
He begins with life from the beginning. Jesus, you guys know it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is our life now in the present. It's not one day he'll be my life. He is my life now. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you see, guys, Jesus isn't an add-on. I want Jesus, and I also want to play. I want Jesus, and I want to be able to flirt when I want to flirt. I want Jesus, and I want to indulge when I want to indulge. I want Jesus, but I don't want to become a fanatic. I want, and it's like Jesus, the perfect gentleman, he just kind of, where are you going, Lord? I'm just out here. Maybe later, Lord. Verse 28, and when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and, and is calling for you. Do you think that made her feel good? Mary, you know, he's specifically calling for you. And as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Mary met, or Martha met him. Then the Jews, <laughs> who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary arose quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was, she said to him, or she, she fell at, down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus loved these people. We saw this in the first part of chapter 11, that he loved these people. In fact, he loved them on a much deeper level than they thought that he loved them. She, Martha, she goes to Mary secretly. She does this, no doubt, so that Mary could have a few moments uninterrupted by the crowd, those who came to mourn with the ladies, you know, uninterrupted with Jesus. She just wanted her to have this uninterrupted time. Of course, it, it didn't happen, the uninterrupted part, because the group came with her out to where Jesus was. You, you could just kind of feel the emotion in the thing. She falls at his feet. In fact, another thing that's interesting as a Bible student, where do we see Mary? Where's Mary seen most of the time? On the ground. She just seems to be in that, that humble place on the ground at the feet of Jesus. I mean, it's just beautiful when you just kind of stop and, 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 and let the, the scriptures, and it just kind of speaks of the, the, the kind of woman that she was, the kind of person that she was.
I think it's worth noting that Martha says, the teacher. See, this is another thing that kind of goes past us because we kind of think, well, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, Jesus was the teacher. He was the teacher. But you know that for the Hebrew, Hebrew women were never allowed to sit under a rabbi. They had no teacher, women, Hebrew women. Their husband would be their teacher. And we see this unique relationship between Jesus and these women, that Jesus wasn't like the religious leaders of his day. These women felt that they could, and they did many times, no doubt, sit under his, his feet, under his teaching, receiving from him. You know, the Bible talks about how in Christ there's neither male nor female, and it has a list of other things, comparisons. And a lot of people in modern-day Christianity, they take that completely out of context, and they do all sorts of things with that, which is really bizarre. But you just think of how the Lord was really... Because, see, Jesus was representing everything that, that God is when he was on the earth. So it wasn't like it was something new. It was like this is how it was supposed to be from the beginning. And so there they are. And she asks the same question. In verse 33, we're going to close with this. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man, who you always have critics, you know, <laughs> could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? See, they were interpreting, he's crying. Look how he loved Lazarus. Did he love Lazarus? That, that's confirmed earlier on in chapter 11. But that's not why he was crying. He groaned. It's a loud noise, like the snorting of a horse. Growing up, my sister had a horse. As an adult, she had a horse. Uh, she always had horses around her, and, and I, could, I could hear that snorting sound in my head, that loud snort. When it's used of a human, it speaks of of being angry. And then, of course, it goes on to say that he was troubled. And the word troubled, it means to stir or to agitate. So what's Jesus mad about? What's going on? And what's Jesus so angry about? He's snorting like a horse. He's troubled. He's agitated. Sadly, Christianity, modern-day Christianity, has been built around us rather than around him. We try to read ourselves into every scripture. Well, not every scripture. We don't want to ever read ourselves into the scriptures that rebuke or correct, but we always want to read ourselves into any comfort that the scripture might might bring, then that's for me. We just kind of cling to those things. And yet, 
it's not centered around us. The Bible is centered around God. It's him, not us. We benefit because God is gracious and kind and merciful and all of these things, but, but, it, but it's not around us. You know, you, as a pastor, I'll do a memorial service or something, and you'll have people that will come up, and, you know, they're just talking. I, I, I don't know if they've given much serious thought to what they're saying, but they'll say things like, you know, he's in a better place now. Where is that place? If they're not a believer, where is that place? I remember when my dad died, family member after family member after family member got up because my dad was known for something. And they'd get up and say, yeah, Dan's enjoying his, and then they named the alcoholic beverage that he preferred. And I sat there, and I listened as family member after family member after family member talked about how close they were to Uncle Dan, how he left an impact upon them, and I was crying. And I'm sure that my family were, because I was officiating the memorial service, I'm sure that they were thinking, oh, look how Danny loved his dad. Oh, I love my dad, but that's not why I was crying. And I got up and I snorted like a horse not literally. And I was agitated, troubled. And I began by saying, let me tell you what my father's not doing right now. Because see, this is this whole kind of mentality, you know. He's fishing in that great trout lake in the sky. Because everything is built around us. It's built around man. The Bible says, ear has not not heard, eye has not seen what the Lord has in store for us. But, but again, we think, well, my favorite thing to do, you know, uh, you know, our family, we love the beach. We have surfboards and boogie boards and anything that floats on water, you know, that's our family. But you know that in the, in the new heaven and the new earth, there'll be no oceans? So obviously, it's not built around our own pleasures no see. I know I need to wrap this up, and I am. I think that Jesus was agitated because it doesn't make sense <laughs> because of the, the byproduct of, of sin, which is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus, of course, was about to make that gift possible. Guys, the gift was not possible until Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected. What gift? The gift of God, which is eternal life. He's about to make that, that gift possible. And it wasn't going to be a temporary resurrection like Lazarus experienced or Jairus' daughter or any others that had been resurrected who had died again. But it was, it was a gift that was eternal in nature. Jesus was about to deal with the dominating power of death. I 
which is sin. That's the whole purpose for the cross. It's not, oh, he loved us so. He hated sin so much. Yes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See, we could focus on the first part of that. God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. But we need to stop and we need to be somber in our thoughts. And we say, he loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son. What does that mean? I was just reading in the prophets. I was reading in the Psalms. You know, even in the Psalms, they're prophetic in nature. They have, they have tilled my back like, like a hoe, you know. And, and I'm reading the words, and it, it seems to be speaking of Israel as a nation, but we know that, that it was speaking of Christ, what they had done to Christ, the scourging of Christ, the rejection of the Father. All of these things were so horrific. We should rejoice if you're in Christ Jesus, if you have new life in Christ Jesus, but we should never stop and consider the weightiness of the whole thing. That he did this because there was no other means of salvation. Because none of us are good enough. This is that religious mindset, you know. I'm a good guy. Jesus freaks used to share the gospel with me back in the day in the 70s. And they'd say, if you died, you know, you're going to go to heaven or hell. And I'd say, I'm going to, you know, I don't know, I'm going to probably go to heaven because I'm a good guy. And they would just share scripture with me. And I would say stupid things like, that's your opinion. And they would say, it's not my opinion. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not interpreting anything. I'm just reading the verse to you. Yeah, that's your opinion. That's your opinion. Until, by God's grace, I came to that place where I realized it's not their opinion. It's God's word. I'm going to end with this. Mariel and Daniel could come up for the last song. Now this I say, brethren... The flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. That's resurrection. And we shall be changed, not resurrection. For the corruptible must put on incorruptible, and the mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, listen, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Listen. Listen, do you remember Revelation? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've placed your faith in him, your life, your life, your life has been hidden in him. If you are his, live your life for his glory. Please, 
We're running out of time. Please. You know the wonderful thing? Mario's going to wrote this last song, and we've been doing it the past few weeks. I just absolutely love it. But the wonderful thing is that you could be Johnny come lately. You could just be saying, man, I know it's the last hour, but I'm on board this last hour. And you know, according to the parable that Jesus told, remember the laborers, the day laborers that would come out, they all got paid the same, the same wage. There wasn't a, a you know, a um, respecter of persons. That's how our Lord is. You could look back and say, oh, I've wasted so many precious years. Oh, if only, if only, if only, if only. Don't say that. Just simply repent and say, Lord, I'm yours. I want to serve you. I want to live for you. However that looks, please show me, Lord. And start by praying fervently, becoming a student of the word of God. I don't know how said Christians live without the word of God. I would not survive a day without the input of God's word in my mind because my thoughts, they just so naturally go downward. And I need that, that input of his word. So stand with me, please. Lord, we pray that as we leave this place, pray that any here downstairs in the cafe or listening online, Lord, whoever might be listening to this, we just pray, Father, that you, not me, but you would speak to each heart, that you would convince us it's time to awake from our slumber, that we would recognize as we're seeing the things that are happening in the world that uh, <laughs> our redemption draws nearer than when we first believed. We pray, Father, that even though right now the things of this temporal life are the things that we see, they're the things we deal with, they're the things many times that matter most to us, but very soon, Lord, we'll realize that all of these things are the passing things. And we pray, Father, that we would invest our lives in you, serving you, whatever that looks like for each one of us, that we would invest in the heavenlies <laughs> for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.